In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So this is the final episode, maybe. As Todd of season says, four. yes. It's the final episode, except there might be one or two bonus episodes. Oh, it's our intended final episode. Official episodes. This is the so, and we have our special guest Brian Zond, who uh, is coming to talk to us, and that's absolutely fantastic. But before that interview, we have, and we haven't always done this this year, and we have had some people say, "Really like that tasting part," and I think you know, if you don't, you could. Just, just skip, skip it. a little skip bit. ahead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but it is, we do have a cupboard master. Well, it's nice and to be here. Yeah. Hi, the Ken. Hi, Ken. Ken, Ken yeah. Bell, cupboard master and chaplain. How many chaplains are also cupboard masters? I guess we don't know. I, do we have the numbers I, on that? I don't. I would guess in a, like in a Venn diagram, that overlap would be pretty small. You, it's possible. Mm, well put. I mean, I don't want to inflate your ego or anything, but it's possible that you are the only one. It's a At circular the, Venn diagram. This is the <laughs> only one on the North Shore. The only chaplain I think I could go broader than that. who is also a, a cupboard, cupboard master. Cupboard master on a so podcast. So we are really yeah. happy. I see Allison's already drinking. <laughs> the it, drink. felt, it felt right. Um, now we have a special so, tasting. Yeah. So cupboard master Ken. Ken. So we have Off this. Yeah, we have this special liqueur. It is from Ukraine. Uh, and what did we say it was called? Something cherry. Drunk cherry. Drunk cherry. That's at least what Google Lens tells us. I do not well, speak so or read Ukrainian. Judging from the label. It, it feels right. It fits. It fits. Little, I think it's okay. Yeah. It's I think beautiful. it's accurate. And I tried reverse translate and the characters all work. So okay. I, think, I think that's what it's called. Drunk so cherry. It's, it's, a, it's a liqueur. It's only 17.5%, but it is a nice tasting cherry liqueur. It's supposed to be served and chilled. And it is actually from Ukraine. Yes. And it yes. actually is. Friends of... Yeah, Keith's Allison's husband, Keith, right? Yeah, he has Veronica. a he has a friend that works at a bike shop with him. Who last year went back to Ukraine. He's from Ukraine, um, and so his wife came over because they were getting their citizenship papers, and so she came over to take her oath and get passport stuff sorted out, and came for dinner and brought us this beautiful so bottle. Nice this beautiful bottle of cherry liqueur that I couldn't read any word on. Yeah, his, which is his which current is situation is he can't come back. No, right? he can't leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was able to take his citizenship oath from Ukraine, mm-hmm. but he knew when he, he returned. Oh goodness, I, I feel like March or April of last year, um, and has been there since. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they're not currently doing conscription, but because he's of the age that he could be, mm-hmm. he's not allowed to leave. Okay. but his wife came back. I don't know. It really looks. This it's looks beautiful. Nice. It's it delicious. is. In the kind reason of a graphic. The reason kind of, <laughs> are we going to put a picture of the? Label? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. Because it's the, this the reason like we're woman holding these two giant cherries. Yes, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. The reason we're a little hesitant, of course, is because all the it's all written in Ukrainian, so we're not totally sure. But Google we're going to go with drunk cherry. And I often think. we, our listeners, we think like you could, you should go and pick this up, or and something. you can't. Yeah. I don't think you can. Unless you're celebrating. Unless you happen to be in Ukraine this summer. In which case you could. 
Probably. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Um, so so tell let's the, talk tell about the drink. Here. The cocktail that we've that I've made is a mixture of gin and uh, the drunk cherry and some tonic. So it's a gin and tonic with a with uh, a the cherry, cherry liqueur. And the cherry is very nice. It tastes it's like cherry, but sweet. it's not super sweet. It's no. not medicinal. It doesn't have that sort of medicine-y uh, flavor that mm. a lot of cherry drinks have. And with a little s- twist of lime in there. So it's a nice summer drink. So good. It's delicious. And it definitely gets a cherry flavor. So that's uh, what we're going with, drunk cherry. That and is, now we're going to have that is really, a good conversation really good. about... Mm-hmm. What are we having a conversation about? Well, ooh, something ooh, that would happen if you dr- if you consumed this. Oh, yeah. Where you would go? Some, so according to some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Eternal conscious torment. To you'd go to hell for. I think that was a lot of words to say hell. <laughs> sounds well, kind of, no, it doesn't sound nicer. So Brian's Eternal on. conscious <laughs> torment. No. So Brian's on is um, a writer and a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, he ha- he's taught a number of courses. He does online courses and. Recently, a number of us uh, joined one of his online courses that's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which is obviously a takeoff on Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the old classic Jonathan Edwards sermon. Mm-hmm. And so what Zond is saying, you know, is if God is loving, and they, then what about? You know, what about the book of Revelation? What about judgment? What about? And he has one of the sessions is what about hell? And the main kind of idea in that session is you may have grown up with this concept taught to you um, of eternal hell, like eternal damnation, and he unpacks that. It's, it's largely what he does with much of his writing, is he says, you, you may have grown up believing this, but you don't have to believe that way to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. In fact, many of the things that you may believe are actually not from within Christian orthodoxy, itself they come from other places like right. so when he talks about hell he's he doesn't say that he doesn't believe in hell in fact he kind of says he thinks you should that sh- we should leave that open that there mm. you know there, may po- there, may there has be to be a way of dealing with wrong or perhaps our understanding of what hell is yes so he does yeah. certainly push against that and, mm-hmm. and the main thing that he pushes against is eternal conscious torment he calls it and i quote a malignant theological a concept that produces more atheists than Christians. A malignant theological concept that produces more atheists than Christians. He calls it a malicious doctrine that destroys Christian faith in thoughtful, tender souls. I was really interested in those two things. Mm. It destroys Christian faith in thoughtful, tender souls. Mm -hmm. When you think of how many people have walked away from Christian faith because they simply can't contend with the idea, and Zond unpacks this, that a loving God would create people mostly so that most of them, almost all of them to some degree, who've ever lived, would be eternally damned and more than that, eternally tormented and punished. So and he, and conscious, con- conscious of that fact. Yes. They know. Oh, so it's, it's not, experience. Yeah, it's not yeah. just that you are uh, in hell or you're annihilated but you are aware of this it's torture and that it is forever. Mm-hmm. And it's punitive and there's no way out. Uh, there's no way. Y- if, you, if you didn't check the right boxes beforehand, before entering the, the booth, uh, that's it. There's no going back. There's no edits. There's no corrections. Which for this finite experience of life that we have, the math is a bit wonky. Well, it is. Yeah, and it means that the, the game is certainly tilted in a particular way where you have 80 years to determine eternity mm-hmm. he, he says i he says i don't think that most christians actually believe it 
um, they, he, in his mind, and I, I, this is where the kind of pastor in me connects with the pastor, how he's speaking. Most people in the churches that I was part of, now I never taught this, but people were raised, you know, Mm -hmm. before thinking that this was, and it was something for me to think like, even with, um, uh, Jen and her sisters, my wife and her sisters, and they were, they grew up in a, in a context where they were told as children that there was this thing in hell and there was like, that's astounding to me that that would happen. But Zahn says he doesn't think as a pastor that most Christians, even evangelical Christians really believe this. He says, if they did, it's like, like a compartmentalized. Well, why would way. you have kids? Like, you know, right. cause mm-hmm. if, if there's any chance mm-hmm. that they literally will be eternally consciously tormented, um, what, and then he also says what possible evil could, um, justify that kind of retribution. Mm-hmm. There is none. Like, t- for eternal conscious torment, so people always say Adolf Hitler, right? Yeah, everybody and goes to like, Hitler and Stalin. Okay, yeah. but wouldn't there be an end of the judgment? But Not from a loving God. Because eternal means... Forever and ever. There's, there is nothing that can equate, there's no... There's no wrong that can equate. He also says um, that, so not only does he think that most Christians don't believe it, but he says that in his experience, and I agree with this, uh, that those who do believe it often end up psychologically damaged. That if you have this concept and you actually believe it or you think you're supposed to and you grew up as a young person, and um, you're going to face some psychological damage. Yes. And you would, you would also face an awful lot of death anxiety uh, around the idea of, well, have I done enough to make it in? <laughs> You're literally describing mm. like my you childhood. Are <laughs> on the edge of, have have I been good enough? Have I done enough? Have I believed enough? Have I had enough faith? Have I handed out enough tracks? Have I whatever it is to earn the check in the right column? And so your death anxiety would be through the roof because this is a forever thing, and and I don't want to. So how can I make sure? guaranteed to know that but then i'm on the that right side of it extends beyond your own to the people that you love as well right which mm-hmm. is why like you just, have such it's panic not your around own death but just everybody someone who is backslidden right mm. you you have that that angst mm-hmm. around yeah. that yeah so because their I was eternity when you, when you said tender mind the first thing that i think of is children yeah right and what so those messages, Allison just <laughs> said, you know, like that was her childhood. That was your wife Jennifer's childhood and her sister's childhood. With like, loving parents. Yes. yes. No, this wasn't. But they this were isn't saying a, no, things from about Christian and, leaders. And, and that, even like, well, my parents it is didn't. A little my parents Because they were willing to say it. But they yeah. thought they were doing the right thing. Well, yes. my parents didn't torment us <laughs> with, su- with, with threats of hell. I mean the church community that I existed in did that well enough. Like there wasn't a lot, like there wasn't that like in our house. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I was probably a little more, you know, self-involved than wondering about have I, you know, handed out enough tracks. I was mostly just concerned about myself. Um, And so like any chance of like altar call, any chance of like Mm -hmm. rededication, I took every single one of them. Was that always for fear of hell or was that like in my experience and I mean, no, no, we're all different. I didn't fear hell. I, I don't know that I ever f- fully believed it. Also, th- part of the problem was I read the Bible um, on my own. That is And studied and <laughs> learned. And <laughs> yeah. So, and then I would have these people saying things and I'd be like, that's not what that means or that's not what that says. Or when mm-hmm. Jesus was doing that, he was actually using that against these people. So he was always sending people to hell who insisted upon hell. 
you know, and, and insisted upon hell for other people. And he always turned the tables around going like, if you love it so much, then it is reserved for mm-hmm. you kind of is the idea. Um, but so for me, it wasn't so much a fear of hell as much. I, I had this, I did have this thing and still have residue from it. Like I have to try and please God. But it, it wasn't like I was afraid of judgment of that, but it was like, you know, trying mm-hmm. to live up to something. Or, I but mean, I'm I'll admit of, like, You've spoken at length about how much time you spent reading the text and scripture. Most people don't. I don't know that that's, I, yeah. And I, I didn't. And I would assume more like most people, especially in high school. And so I just took what I was told mm-hmm. at their word about, you know, what's there. Um, happy little chance. Liars go to hell. Liars go to hell. Like that was a thing. And it was funny. And we all laughed. Holy cow. But there's something that's implied there and it kind of sinks in. I don't know that I spent a ton of time thinking about hell until my grandfather died. And I can remember standing at Lionsgate Hospital just outside his room. And the youth pastor at the time came in and he was hugging me and he was like super, you know, I'm really sorry. And then very seriously, just quietly said, was he saved? And um, I don't know. And I had never thought about it that way. (laughs) And then spent a several hours wondering oh dear god what's, what's happened? just happened to grandpa yeah um i didn't have that with my grandparents but i remember keith's grandmother i don't know that she would have called herself a christian like my mother-in-law's mom my, my father-in-law's mom definitely would have um but she attended church because her husband was and it was important and even after he passed she went to everything um i don't know that she ever technically like prayed a prayer yeah but she certainly like embodied philosophies of Christ. Um, and so I just remember all of us were like, we're not going to say whether granny actually prayed the prayer. If anyone asks yeah. us, because everybody just assumed that she did. Cause she'd been attending that church and for decades. That's so funny. Cause when my grandmother died, she's the reason that I ended up at church. She yeah. brought me to Sunday school every week. Um, nobody asked me if she was saved, nope. because never she was got there. Question. But my grandfather didn't go to church, uh. and so that was the first question. Mm. There's a great story. It's in the interview, and it's in Zon's course on taking people to hell. Oh, and yeah. Oh, when so he goes good. to the Holy Land, and yeah. he says, like, yeah. anybody want to go to hell and back today? Because it's the basically what was the garbage dump outside of mm. the city. And it's interesting, because around here, we refer to this in our interview too, but around here, there's a park between here between where we are here and where you live, Ken, there's that inter-river park, which used to be the city dump. It did. And now it's like beautiful fields, mountain views, kind of, so the same thing is in... But it's not named hell. Yeah, and and it's now this beautiful place, Mm -hmm. and he said there's a little... You can listen to it in the interview, but he also mentions in his course that the word hell in the NRSV is only in the... in scripture four times. Mm. That the Bible itself does actually not talk about the afterlife very much not really um and at there least is not in literal terms you hear it in like there's the parable which people don't take a lot of other stuff right. literally in parables right but this one they do i always think <laughs> that's funny with the book of revelation the book of revelation is like literal yeah figurative mm-hmm. figurative figurative symbolism 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 and then lake of fire real yeah like <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know it's just an amazing <laughs> thing that people do but but you don't they don't think of it i as a pastor people well into their 70s 80s who grew up with a strong, strong concept of eternal conscious mm-hmm. torment, hell, and who even kind of outgrew it or moved past mm-hmm. it, it still tormented them. I think it still, yeah. it still it's, niggles in the back of the mind. I, think, I try to think, and I, I'm saying this from my Christian faith. So, I mean, it's, it's such an easy thing for people to do. 
um, if you don't believe in hell, you're definitely going there. You know, like it's just, there's no, you can't, you can't have a conversation with, with this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's put it this way for those listening. There are definitely through the years, through the like thousands of years of Christian faith, many, many, many Christians who have not believed in eternal conscious torment. There are others who don't believe in any hell at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Zond is saying he he could leave room to believe in hell, but he certainly mm -hmm. doesn't believe in eternal conscious torment. One of the things that I think is interesting in the, or in conversations I've heard more recently in hell is there's the trend in in more progressive circles or i've seen it a lot in like quote unquote like deconstruction circles where people reject it entirely and i understand that because i think initially as i started to move away from some fundamentalist beliefs that i had i really wanted to reject it because it just felt like it didn't make sense with god being love and i didn't have a concept for it that was anything other than eternal conscious torment and so i kind of threw it out for a while And as I was doing preparation for, I think it was my first course at VST, um, Todd, you handed me uh, Fleming Rutledge's very intimidating book, The Crucifixion. It's like, what, Ken knows that book well, too, Mm -hmm. yeah. Almost 700 pages. And so I read... And we know, well, we've met, talked to you. Yeah. We've had had a drink or two with With Fleming Rutledge. (laughs) Or or seven, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so I read it. There's a chapter in there called The Descent into Hell. And one of the things that always stood out to me, it helped me really reframe. Like, I, I don't know whether there's hell or not. or I or certainly don't what believe. What it is. No, I don't. Nobody does. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that she says in here is that the concept of hell takes seriously the nature and scale of evil. Without a concept of hell, Christian faith is sentimental and evasive, unable to stand up to the reality mm. of this world. And there was part where I was like, okay. And, and she talks about hell as being something that's more of like, it's a domain. Like you can't deny that hell and evil in some form exists. What that means, whether you have some sort of like universal redemption that you think happens at the end of all time, whether you believe in actual universalism, which is different, whether you believe in like annihilation that at some point hell stops and there just ceases to be an existence of the pe- of like the souls that were there. I, I don't know. Or that there's some kind of thing that's cleansing in some way. So like a purgatory-ish yeah, kind yeah. of mm-hmm. thing that there's there's the, so many. The Bible leaves room for that. almost all of these things. That's it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, like I know that um, George McDonald greatly influenced um, Brian Zond. He he talks about that. And, and C.S. Lewis. Well, and I think we have. <laughs> yeah. and I think I think Brian says this in our in our interview with him that. If we didn't have C.S. Lewis, yes. how many people would actually yeah. still know McDonald? Because yeah. he was that. such like a, you know, evangelist for him. Um, but in in McDonald's uh, uns- in unspoken sermons, his thing on justice, he talks about how some sort of thing like held as like an eternal conscious torment doesn't really make sense because if you take away someone's watch and then the person gets punished by like some sort of beating that doesn't fix the watch like the watch is gone it doesn't actually it's not just yeah in that sense there's no hope for redemption and there's no hope also for mcdonald points out and i think brian does in his book as well that you're like do you, if you say that god is entirely just and god is entirely merciful that means that those things aren't at odds you can't say that like well you have to god has to balance his mercy with his justice and it's like no actually he doesn't <laughs> i don't think you get to tell god how he functions but if he is entirely loving, if he is entirely just, if he is entirely merciful, those things are not in competition with each other. Yeah, and that the Zahn gets into this, that the 
the orthodox concept of like river of fire, right? Where judgment mm-hmm. and love come together, where they're the same mm-hmm. thing. And I mean, that's really and your experience. Basic. Your experience of it is what defines right. And that hell, heaven or hell, to some degree. And again, this isn't describing the nature of it, but is is the rejection of God's love, the refusal yeah. of God's love. Yeah. But God offers nothing but love. Right. And and if you reject that, then there is some kind of nature of. Um, and I was listening to different things, CBC podcast on um, this band teacher from the late 1970s in schools in Ontario who was, in Ontario who was uh, sexually abusing young girls. Um, but at the time, uh, with, when the age of consent was 16, um, it, I don't think it's, it's probably similar now. It is. But a teacher could uh, have sex with a student legally, mm-hmm. like not by the rules of the College of ed, you know Teachers, but by the law, uh, as long as there was consent and it wouldn't be illegal. Um, and so now they're like revisiting some of these cases. And, but one of the women who's now in her fifties, who was in her teens when it happened, she talks about, she grew up in church. And so this band teacher, um, groomed her and she had a wooden desk that she notched each time they had sex. And she had 56 notches in this wooden desk. She was 16 years old and he was like 32 or something at the time. And, uh, Really terrible story, really sad, and multiple victims, all this kind of thing. Um, but at the time, she thought she was kind of willing participant in a way. Some of this stuff is going on and stuff, right? Then she she didn't report anything. She didn't until her dad got sick and had was diagnosed with a terminal illness with cancer. And in her young and Christian mind, and she had this other thing going on in her life where she felt she was also this terrible sinner, even though she was being groomed and abused. Mm-hmm. She she thought, oh no, my dad's going to die. Then he's going to go to heaven and he's going to know everything I'm doing and I'm going to go to hell. And as I listened to this, I thought, oh my goodness, the layers of abuse that happen when and how much abuse within religious systems depends upon eternal conscious torment, whether it's shiny, happy people, well, because current, it, you know, it's, it's the Gothard thing. It all depends on you're going to go to hell. It's mm-hmm. fear-based. Yeah. It's yeah. It, the idea is the only, the only way to convince people to believe, trust, follow a loving God is to scare them into that relationship. It kind of says maybe God isn't that good. Well, after I all. mean, in yeah. Canada today, the day that we're recording this is national indigenous people's day. So if we want to talk about yeah, what, those how? abuses and yeah. fear and yeah. things and like that. Thing. Always hell. Always hell. Always you're, hell. You're, always. you're heathen, you're whatever. Yeah. I, for some reason, it's just my mind. that I used to think of it with cell phone plans. You go to get a cell phone and uh, you're going to buy this plan, especially back in the day when like there's all these different plans and you can spam. them. And I always thought, what if, what if the cell phone company said here's the thing, this is a really good deal, this is a great plan, this is a great, and if you, but if you don't buy it, you're going to be, mm. you know, regret eternal it. conscious torment. I'm going to be like, I think maybe your, your thing isn't that great <laughs> yeah. after all, right? And I think, I think that the fact that so much of Christian faith for so long has depended on this as yeah. a central concept, mm-hmm. I, I think Zahn probably says this, but I certainly feel it as well. I have come to the point where, I'm talking about eternal conscious torment here, don't think I can think of a less Christian theological concept or less than that. loving. The idea, less, yeah. the idea that with. there is no opportunity for redemption. This has yeah. this torture 
is simply for the sake of torture. There's nothing redemptive it's in just it. The idea that suffering it's is retribution. It's only yeah, it's only retribution. It's only getting revenge. That's the part that I, I just don't think that squares with the idea of a of a God who says God love loves the world. And then just as that's like a social concept too, kind of like how things work in the world to think. Okay, so let's assume there is a hell, there is eternal consciousness torment. So the next question is, who goes there? Right. And when the ooh, answer ooh, is... Ooh. <laughs> My church knew. People who don't think and believe like us. Yes, yes. A, 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 dis, you know, a young person with some kind of intellectual discretion will go, mm. I think this might be bullshit. Mm. <laughs> Except like, that if, for myself, I was not taught at a young age intellectual discretion. Right. Like Which there is was part of part the problem. Where You're taught that that's, that's dangerous, actually. It is insanely yeah. dangerous because as... As insidious as fear is, which I believe fear-based theological doctrines are insidious, mm. they are effective. Yeah. And for me, I feel like I was like gaslit into thinking that it was good still. And it, like, there are people who go, this is bullshit. And they realize that. But largely, it was not until I was removed from that community and removed mm. from that, like, physically. Like, I no longer lived in the same city. And I didn't see it when I was in it. And so I have compassion for people that don't see it. Especially when you're receiving that from a young age. Of course you don't see it. But just no. like, think about little kids with their little underdeveloped frontal lobes and their inability to like conceptualize things. And yeah. literally in one Sunday school class told how much they're loved and how much they're cared for. But at the same time, I mean, you better be good or else. Well, I think of people like Jennifer, my wife. Yeah, yes. that anxiety the nicest, at a young most age. Most person in the world taught this thing. Mm-hmm. When when Zahn says it's a malicious doctrine that destroys Christian faith and thoughtful, tender souls, I think of people like her. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I honestly think generationally, because it does so much damage, it probably would be very effective. Like in terms of your life, your mental health, your spiritual health, to kind of walk away from mm-hmm. the faith in general yeah. if that was a key part of it. That there are people who, that, and that's what Zond is saying, it actually is those tender people have to reject the faith altogether mm-hmm. if this was a key part. That would be the healthy thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think one yeah. of my proudest parenting moments, and there, there's not a lot, but there's some, is that my my daughter who, who you know, she has a lot of anxiety. I was very nervous about her going and having any Sunday school sort of experience because I just, you know, projected my own experience onto her and didn't want her to live through that. Um, but her and I were having a conversation about all things that, that I was a heretic. Um, and what that meant. The long conversation. Yeah, no. We choose <laughs> difficult lots conversations that I'm on not there. sure that my kids understand. Settle in a bedtime. Yeah, Let's talk about heresy. It's fun. Um, but, like, I was explaining to her, and I some, somehow, like, hell came up, and she's like, well, I said, yeah, you know, you know, I... I don't believe that people will burn in hell. And she's like, what do you mean burn? And I was like, it was like a parenting win that I was like, she doesn't know what that means. Yeah. And it it, doesn't that give you hope for this generation. It does. I mean, I'm sure that I'll mess her up in different ways, but I kind of go, my parenting philosophy is I hope that my children are messed up differently than I was. But Mm -hmm. there is part where I do go like, I, I feel like the spark of hope that like she, she attends church and I mean, I'm, I'm still very 
careful about who teaches her anything about faith, um, Mm -hmm. which is a me thing. Um, But, but I go, that's one generation. She doesn't know what that means. And, yeah. And she has no concept of God like hope, that. But I think it does take... It's, it's hard because we have our own context and we know, you know, mm-hmm. your daughter's a great example. Like, that's really good. But that I'm doesn't not convinced that, you know, throughout the rest of the country, Sunday schools are not no. still sharing that message or across the border. I think there's or some change. There in is. But You know, it's being still a pastor there. for a number of years, one of the things I always thought was the wrong people are playing defense. Like the, mm. the, the people who are playing defense mm. are the ones who want to love everybody, <laughs> who want to say, I think probably we should accept people who are gay. It's like, oh, you better be careful. I think maybe there's maybe not such a thing as eternal conscious trauma. You better be careful. Like, mm. I think the people who need to play defense are the ones who insist upon these psychotic things. Yeah. And I think it's just knowing what is happening in the church right now around other conversations, whether yeah. it be women in leadership and things like that. It's not such a leap to think oh. their Sunday school classes are probably teaching the things to we're, be clear, we're thinking about. I'm I'm not convinced that this is like a general sort of Sunday school experience. I mean, no, I, it's still happening. Her experience My prayer is that with it, Sunday it school stops, is quite curated. I mean, Jennifer yeah. was one of her teachers. My husband is one of yeah, her teachers. Yeah, you're not going to get it. But, but just part of it gonna. is that filter like, is deep. No, 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 and that was intentional. That I was really wanting to be careful with knowing the ways in which she is like me. I was really concerned about the anxiety that that sort of understanding of God would give to her. And I did not want her to have to go through that. So I'm not necessarily saying that the church in general has changed, but I am just very hopeful that when we have been able to present a different lens through which to view God, it is possible that you can, you don't have to have mm-hmm. those fears. Yeah. yeah. Where I feel hopeful, like I think about Cap Church, the, the church yeah. that a couple of us work at. That is not the message that children mm-hmm. are, are getting. I know that with confidence. <laughs> I know who's teaching those stories and the mm-hmm. stories they're hearing. They are not getting those stories. And it's so good to hear, whether it's from people like us or others, it just helps, right, th- to hear very many Christians and yeah. some of the greatest theologians in Christian history mm-hmm. have not had this concept. It definitely comes more from medieval mm. um, ideas, from Dante's Well, Inferno, and if you want to go back to even, like, the church, like, the early church did not generally believe this. No. The early church fathers, like if you go back to what orthodoxy actually no, is. No, there's not the this concept. people who wrote the freaking creeds yeah. did not believe in this. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thanks I think, be to God. Thanks mm-hmm. be to God. And, and they believed in know, other things. We're grateful here. for people like Brian Zond who, yes. who mm. remains pastoral, um, but is unafraid to talk about these yeah. things and, and say, and say things like, this is a malignant theological concept. I think one of the good things about his work, and I think important for our listeners to understand, like sometimes writings like this are really hard to take in, and his work is super accessible. And so if and you have interest so. in, in reading his books, yeah, absolutely much. read them. They're or not a difficult read. They're not like, you go know, online, high academic. Take these courses, <laughs> um, listen to absolutely. these lectures. He yeah. looks a bit like Fred Armisen, so that helps. But he sounds a little bit like Matthew McConaughey. looks like Fred Armisen, sounds like Matthew McConaughey. He Just probably would want the other way around, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> so, uh, enjoyed the interview. Ken, yes. thank you for thank the, you. Oh, thank good you. Drink. So drink. Joy and uh, fantastic. Yeah. And to another season. Yes. But maybe a couple of Oh, cheers, episodes. guys. Cheers. cheers. <laughs> Thanks to all you who listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Rector's Covered. Uh, on this episode, we are very pleased to welcome Brian Zond, who is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church, a non-denominational Christian congregation in St. Joseph, Missouri. Brian and his wife, Perry, 
founded the church in 1981. Uh, he's also the author of several books, probably too many to list, but they include uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, Unconditional, The Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness, and then coming up very soon, The Wood Between the Worlds, A Poetic Theology of the Cross. So thank you very much for joining us today, Brian. We're really very grateful and very excited to talk to you. Thank you, Allison. Good to be with you. Uh, Brian, thanks for being here. We're joined. We've got a few people mm-hmm. around the Extras. table here um, because uh, we have Neil and Peter who are readers and listeners who've engaged with much of your work, Brian. And I thought that a great way to start, and Amanda's here as well. Yes. Uh, has a mic too. Board. Yeah, she could jump she in. She could say hi. She sure okay, could. Okay, there she is. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we're pleased to all be together, but we thought a good way to start the interview would be to have questions from Neil and Peter, here's why. Mm-hmm. Brian, as I listened to your work and read your work and have um, I've been part of a recent online course that you've done on Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, I think I did this because I'm a, a fellow pastor, but also uh, others could easily see this as well. The pastoral sensibility mm-hmm. to your work, that there is what I would call a theological healing that is, I sometimes think, you know, those DNA tests that people can do and find out where they're from. I, I sometimes think there should be like a theological DNA test mm-hmm. that we could say, oh, that's where you come from. Yes, okay, well, let's, uh, let's help here. And your work is masterful at that um, in a way that is not um, accusatory, uh, but in a way that at the same time is strong enough to say there's probably some better ways to think about this, and you do that so very well. And so I thought, what a great way to start, instead of a Q&A at the end, to have questions from readers. And so we've invited um, sure. Neil and Peter along, who've engaged with a whole bunch of your work. And and the three of us have had really good conversations um, uh, s- spurred on by your work. And so I'm going to hand it over to Peter and to Neil to ask you a few questions first to start before Allison and I kind of conduct the rest of the interview. Uh, I think Peter probably has the first question. So sure. um, why don't you go ahead? So, Brian, um, I've pretty much read all of your books, actually listened to them as audiobooks in the gym as I worked out, and um, it's deeply impacted me. My sense is a lot of the books are written to people who have uh, a Christian background, have some knowledge of it, and and so over the years, I've kind of thought, you know, I'd just love to ask Brian a really a basic question. You, your background and my background are very similar. We're about the same age. Um, and I remember vividly at Christian camp uh, in the summer, you know, sitting with everybody around the roaring campfire at night and the camp director basically sharing the gospel, which was that we're, um, we're all guilty sinners straight out of the gate, uh, destined to separation from God and eternal judgment and hell. Um, but the good news is that God loves us, sent Jesus. And if you mm-hmm. accept him as your savior, you can be saved from this fate, um, which was a bit of a struggle because now at that point we were going, well, well, I'll do anything to get out of that fire. It's not looking so great. Um, But, you know, as you've mentioned, you know, with more contemplation, sometimes those things fall apart. So I started to think, okay, that was the 1970s. And I thought if you were that camp director today and you were at the summer camp this summer with a group of kids, some of them never exposed to Christianity before, how would you present the gospel today in a concise way to those kids? I would, I would lean into the beauty of Christ. Um, I would 
I, the gospel is the story of Jesus. So you have a very, like, Instagram story-length one that is death, burial, and resurrection. Then you have the fuller telling that is, you know, Christmas to Easter. But then you have the director's cut edition that starts in Genesis 1-1 and takes you to Revelation 22-21. I would simply lean into telling the story of Jesus and not try necessarily to come up with a formula for, uh, for response, but pre- tell the story of Jesus, base, the, the basic contour of his life. He begins to proclaim the arrival of a new kingdom. He gathers disciples. He's most famous as a healer. He's controversial in that he associates with sinners willingly and freely forgives them. He was rejected by religious authorities. He was crucified by imperial governmental authorities, and the Father raised him from the dead on the third day. And now he continues to call people into his circle that we call maybe the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, perhaps at times we could call it the church or something like that, but that Jesus invites us out of a dead-end existence and invites us into a place where there's forgiveness, where there's mercy, where there's grace, where there's healing, where we can become who we are called to be. And the ultimate achievement of Jesus Christ is that he has now defeated death. He entered into death, because he is human, he could die, but because he is divine, he could not be conquered by death. And Christ has conquered death so that we are liberated from the fear of death. I, you know, so I would do, I would do it like that. Hmm. So Uh, it's almost, I don't, I don't feel like I need to preach the bad news, (laughs) preach the good news. I mean, we're all aware of the bad news. The bad news is bad enough. That in some way, there's some somehow we're broken, somehow we're alienated from one another, and to a certain extent from God. I mean, we we experience that, we sense that, and that Jesus is the one that comes to um, rectify that alienation and bring us. And redemption is bringing us back into union with God. Not that God has to be coerced, but that Jesus is the way home to the Father's house. Mm. Um, I mean, we're all born a long way from home, and which is a, which. If you think about it, that's a strange sentence, but I think most people resonate with it. We're all born a long way from home, mm. and we're trying to find our way home. And Jesus is that way home to the Father's house. It would be something like that. Mm. So it's more like a proclamation. Is I think what. I'm hearing, and also from your reading. I'm not selling timeshares, you know, so it's not. (laughs) But it's more just an announcement. Look, here's here's what's happened. This is the good news. This is the story of a new kingdom. Jesus is is leading this kingdom. Would you like to be a a part of that kingdom and experience that? Hmm. The problem with um, using threats I mean, there's a lot of problems, but one of the problems is you cast God the Father in a negative light, and then you wittingly or unwittingly uh, present Jesus as the one who saves us from the Father. Mm-hmm. Now, people will respond to that. You did. <laughs> but they, But it comes with so much baggage 
that then you enter into this faith kind of suspicious of the Father. Does God the Father really love me, or has he worked out a quid pro quo with Jesus that somehow gets me in, that Jesus shields me from what is the basic demeanor of the Father towards me, which is one of wrath? Hmm. Well, that creates all kinds of potential for spiritual pathologies. And as a pastor, I, I encounter these people all the time. And so I just think there's a better way. There's a, there's a, there's a better way to preach good news is good news without having to make the father a kind of villain and the gospel sort of a good cop, bad cop routine. So I would try to avoid all that. Before long though, like if they did accept it, um, it wouldn't probably be very long before some Christian would come to them and start talking to them about hell and uh, yeah. and damnation. What? How would you then counsel them? Well, I let's be let's be clear. Uh, I believe in a hell. Uh, it may not be the hell of whoever Dante or a chick track or whatever. Uh, I mean, I believe a hell on a lot of different levels. I mean, most of the time when Jesus is talking about a fiery judgment, he's talking, he's using the word Gehenna, and he's talking about uh, how Israel, or Jerusalem in particular, in, in rejecting the way of peace and hell-bent on violent revolution against Rome, is going to turn the entire city into a flaming Gehenna which is what happens in A.D. 70, which is another way of saying that sin is consequential. I mean, if, if we move away from the trajectory toward love God with all of our heart, love our neighbor as ourself, uh, we don't do that without suffering the subsequent consequences. That's an element of hell. But if we, if we want to take it into... Um, the afterlife, well, I would just say it this way. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And so the the games we've played, the false self we've constructed, the way we have used others for our own advantage and still continue to tell ourselves that we're a good person, to, to stand in the searing light of the one who is truth and have to face that. I mean, I don't have any problem saying, I guess that's hell. But it it doesn't need to be the end of the story. It may be the beginning of the story. And so I don't see punishment. I'm not even sure I like the word punishment necessarily, although I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Um, it has to be towards some redemptive end. So an eternal punishment, <laughs> that makes no sense at all. Eternal, so, so it's a punishment that there's no hope of rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. There's no hope of transformation. There's no end to it. Besides the fact that an eternal punishment for a finite sin is couldn't could never be viewed yeah, as justice. Reprehensible. So so I, I don't I don't want to just I, I'm I'm nervous about just saying because people have been traumatized by a version of hell mm -hmm. that is well, eternal not characteristic torment. of the Father yeah. to just say, well there is no hell. Well no there is. Yeah there is and there is judgment, and there are consequences. Um, but I like to say we are more punished by our sin than for our sin. Hmm. And the truth is no one ever gets away with anything. Everything's going to be faced. Yeah. 
it's better if we take the initiative and we try to acknowledge uh, that we are sinners and own our sin and come to God and ask for mercy because it'll be there rather than just to have to be confronted by it. I think that's when it when it becomes more hellish, if you will. Hmm. Your answer to Peter's question uh, has uh, what like theologians call a high Christology. You go like you go mm-hmm. right to Jesus, right? Um, that brings me an awareness, knowing Neil, the the contours of your question, um, to and so does the talk of hell. To your question had both concepts of hell and universalism, all these things in terms of so that that Christ is not simply a means to an end. Right, that which is more the stuff that you started with, Peter, reacting against. Uh, so, Neil, go ahead and ask your question and move us further along here. Yeah, Brian, uh, this was a really a question more on um, the if the fear of an everlasting or afterlife hell is not actually present for those outside our particular interpretation of Scripture, um, and. And that view has been replaced by the really good and hopeful news that fear and death have actually been defeated by Jesus' resurrection. Can you uh, try and help me understand or help us understand uh, why many theologians appear to be afraid to use, I think, the you word? I think that was something (laughs) that you described. I mean, many of us... Well, I don't know if I'm afraid to use it. I choose not to use it. Because people assume they know what I would if I use if if I use that word, we're talking about universalism. Yeah. In case somebody <laughs> has not figured out, is this you word? What is this? Uh, <laughs> it is a word that is has enough traffic in Christian circles that people think that they'll have an opinion of what it is, right? So, and with pop universalism. It goes more like, you know, Hitler's in his bunker, pulls the trigger, and then he's in his luxury villa mm-hmm. for eternity with no accountability, no judgment, and really no necessity for Jesus or anything like that. It just somehow, you know, everything just results in heaven. And I don't believe anything remotely like that. So I choose to use a word that most people don't know, and then we can work on what I mean by that. So I'll, what I'll say is I have a very robust hope in apocatastasis. And of course, That's, you know, unless people know, they go, apoca, what? Uh, and he said, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a Bible word in, in Acts 3.21, when Peter talking about the work of Christ speaks of universal restoration or the restoration of all things. And though it only occurs in that exact form, that one time in Acts 3.21, the church fathers loved that word, and they used it quite a bit. And so what I, I'll just say, I have a robust hope in apocatastasis. That is, that the Father did not send the Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. And the Father, and the Son doesn't return to the Father and say, Father, you have no idea. <laughs> It's way, it's they're way worse off than what I thought. I, I, I can save some, but yeah. no, I, I believe the world will be saved because Jesus is the savior of the world. And that Paul really means it when he says that the final achievement of the redemptive work of Christ is First Corinthians 15, 28, that God will be all in all, pos and pos, the old pos and pos, that God will be all in all. Well, 
And, I, and, and Paul is not being um, reckless with his language. Or he, he is actually, this isn't a passage where he's doing theology, and he's working towards a particular point, and the point is that eventually the cosmos reaches a state of God being all in all. Well, if God is all in all, God is all in all, well, that's when we have apocatastasis. Mm-hmm. But there's but we don't get there cheaply. We don't get there without having to um, repent, without having to cry out to God for mercy, and without the saving work of Jesus Christ. So, so that I'm not misunderstood and immediately rejected, because you know I would say the majority of Christians, at least a lot of them, probably the majority, uh, have been schooled that universalism is a heresy, which mm-hmm. a it's not. Uh, it's not. It, what I would describe universalism, if you want to use that word, as a minority position that has been always held by some. Mm-hmm. And in the early centuries, in the first three centuries, at times, at least in the Greek-speaking East, it may have been the dominant position. Um, so it's it's not a heresy. It's just it's just another. It's something other than the idea of eternal conscious torment, which. I don't I don't use the word heresy. I try not to use it except for matters of Christology. Mm. But eternal conscious torment, I'm not going to call it a heresy, but I'm going to call it ugly. <laughs> I'll call it ugly as hell. <laughs> mm-hmm. And to to insinuate that that God of his own volition supernaturally sustains the existence yeah. of beings in his own image for the purpose of tormenting them for eternity, I, I don't know. Is tell me a more wicked monster than yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me something more. Mo- I mean, Stephen King never created a monster that bad. <laughs> yeah. So if if I can maybe sort of just push a little, Brian, on sure. Um, if so, if ultimately all our actions and lives. Uh, will be judged by Jesus when we die, and I, I certainly believe that. And the fiery presence of God's love will burn away whatever is not of love's kind, to quote mm-hmm. uh, Paul Young. And that God will, out of pure love, respect our choices both now and into eternity. And yet, very long question, I apologize, and yet God's yes, restorative should. love will always endure and outlast mm-hmm. even our stubbornness. Is it not really just splitting hairs about what the what is the ultimate end result? Well, it may be splitting hairs about the ultimate end result, but how we get there matters. Right. So I would say if we will define hell as any kind of any kind of reception of the love of God that is unpleasant because of your own posture toward it, that theoretically can be eternal in that because authentic being demands and requires radical freedom, because if that collapses, then, well, why even have this conversation? We're all just a movie playing in God's head. And so we have authentic autonomy. We can choose. And theoretically, only theoretically, we can at any given moment 
resist the redemptive love of God. And and by the way, God's single disposition toward all human beings is nothing but unconditional love. But if we resist that, if we, if we won't coordinate our lives with that love, then we experience it, I think, as judgment. Perhaps even we could use the word wrath. That's our experience mm-hmm. of it. It's not, the, it's not what it is, but it's how we experience it. So at any given moment, we can persist in that resistance. And that, in that sense, hell is potentially eternal. But which is longer? Human <laughs> stubbornness and sin or hmm. the loving kindness of God that endures forever? Or, to put it another way, is God's favorite Rolling Stones song, Time is on my yeah. side. <laughs> you guys, uh, Neil and Peter, you both, and some of the questions that I saw um, you working through, you both had interesting questions on um, church. So, Neil, you had something on like Orthodox tradition and how that, you know, people in there and how they might move and change. Uh, Brian, I think this really relates to a question that I think it was Peter that had down on how you yourself, Brian, have have um, come to think differently and what those influences have been. And those both would relate to like what you see happening in the church. I don't know if you guys, you're nodding your heads because I'm (laughs) summing up the questions, but um, how would you put that to Brian now? Well, it was kind of actually originally two questions. The one was um, with respect to the church. You know, I'm, I'm just listening to when everything's on fire. For some reason, I just found out about it on Friday and I'm just about through it now. But um, but basically, you know, I do think there is has been a period of deconstruction, not your favorite word, I know. Um, and there has been a fair bit of reconstruction. Some have lost their faith. Um, there's also right now, I think, a polarization within the church where a lot of Christians certainly here don't want to have much association with the kind of a right-wing Christian nationalist agenda that you see in, in certain places mm-hmm. in the United States. And so there's this strong reaction. So I will call myself a follower of Jesus just to confuse somebody enough to give me a blank yeah. slate so I can actually engage in a conversation with them. But where do you see the church going? Um, what's your sense? You're, you're probably a lot more dialed in. That's a big question. I know. Um, well, when where do I see the church going? Let's narrow it down to uh, the North American context. Yeah. I think the church. Uh, I I see the church twenty years down the road chastened and diminished. Uh provided it doesn't retain a position of power. And if it does retain a position of power, mm. then it will be terribly corrupt and abusive mm-hmm. mm. and still aligned with, with nationalism in a really ugly and awful way. But I don't see that as being sustainable simply as demographics change. Mm. What I really mean is old white people start dying off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's just going to change the political landscape. And the church is going to have to return to being which what it needs to be, and that is kind of a a alternative subculture. Uh, if we want to if we want to rule, then we're going to distort the faith, because at the center of the Christian faith is a cross, which is which is absolutely non coercive. 
uh, Jesus was willing to die for that which he was unwilling to kill. And we keep getting the sword and the cross mixed up, even if the sword is sort of disguised by the power of legislation and, and, and winning elections and that sort of thing. Still, what lurks behind that is the coercive power of the sword. And the sooner we let go of that, the better, because then we can return to a cross-centered Christianity. Mm-hmm. But that's going to be hard for people to do, and I, I, I don't know. I think if we look at Western Europe, that's probably, at least in the immediate sense, our future. By immediate, I mean over the next century or so. Uh, Western Europe, you know, if you're there a lot, I'm there a lot. I mean, it's clearly two things that stand out. It's definitely post-Christian in a way that America doesn't feel like yet, but it also has deeper Christian roots that America Mm -hmm. has never had. And so there are differences. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm sort of rambling, but... um, Well, it was, Neil, because your question was noting the influence that you can see from the Orthodox tradition in Brian's work, and your question more specifically on that Sure, and, and yeah. I think this is the question of, um, as we've seen more and more folk uh, from the western half of the church um, mm-hmm. uh, moving through this sort of unlearning, reimagining, and restoring our image of the beauty of Christ, um, and they seem to be, or we seem to be, rediscovering the mystery and beauty of Christ that's often been found in the Orthodox or the eastern half of the church. I just wondered, are we, are we seeing some of the same things happening with our siblings on that side of the church? Uh, are mm. they making a similar journey? Um, I, I doubt with the well, moving let, let me just Let me <laughs> respond to that by just talking a little bit about orthodoxy from my point of view. Um, we are accustomed to think of the church as uh, being divided by the Reformation. So we think of Protestantism and its many iterations, and then there's Catholicism and maybe Orthodoxy, which is sort of like it. And there's enough truth there. But there's also another way of looking at um, the two sides of the church is not Protestant and Catholic Orthodox, but East and West. So Protestants and Roman Catholics actually share a lot in common. Sometimes people aren't aware of that. We share a lot in common. And what is different is orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. I have discovered over the last probably 15, 20 years that a lot of the particular theological problems that we have in the West can be helped, Mm -hmm. can find some measure of healing if we will incorporate some more Eastern theology in the realm of soteriology, eschatology, some things like that. Now, and I have read a ton of Orthodox theology. Uh, lately, I've been on a binge of Sergius Bogolkov. He was a theologian that um, he worked primarily in he was a, He was from Russia, but he had to leave shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution, did most of his work in Paris. And so I've found uh, a lot that has been healing 
that it's brought a newness, that has brought a fresh perspective by reading quite widely uh, in the Orthodox world. I mean, David Bentley Hart would be an example of an American. He grew up Anglican, but in his teens he converted to Orthodoxy. And so he's probably as influential a theologian in my life as anyone, and, and he's Orthodox. Now, having said that, I want to be careful. Uh, I'm I'm all for if if somebody out there wants to convert to orthodoxy, great. I'll you know I'll celebrate it with you. Um, that's fine. But I I would not want people to have an overly romantic notion. Mm-hmm. Orthodoxy has its own foibles yeah. and problems. And let's just face it: the the most numerous, the most uh, vocal Orthodox Church in the world is the Russian Orthodox yep. Church, where much of its hierarchy, especially Metropolitan Kirill, yep. the, the Patriarch of Moscow, I, this is this he is selling his soul to the devil. It's another in Christian trying to make this right? this invasion of Ukraine a holy war, and uh, he gets called out pretty viciously in one of my chapters in this forthcoming book, mm-hmm. The Wood Between the Worlds. Uh, the, the chapter entitled "One Ring to Rule Them All," so you can imagine what I might do with that. Um, so, <laughs> the Orthodox are really good, I think. I mean, they they have they have treasures, they have gold mines in the realm of soteriology, atonement theology, eschatology, some things like that. They also have some real problems with nationalism. Actually, worse than the than the most egregious American evangelical mm-hmm. example. I mean, they have their 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 paper papal papal Caesarism. I can't remember how to pronounce that word. Uh, for example, in the East, August or, or uh, Constantine is a saint. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, at least in the West, we we don't make him a saint, and we have yeah. to figure out what to do with the Emperor Constantine. In the East, he's actually a freaking saint. <laughs> And so that's a problem. So <laughs> I, I, w- I wouldn't want people to have, you know, I just say, if you're, if you're on the quest for the one true church, good yeah. luck. Um, <laughs> Let the quest continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've found the one true church, and the one true church is the church, you know, in its many, many forms. Yeah. That's the one true church, and it's all kinds of expressions. Yeah. And so I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not looking for the one true church, uh, but I am looking for the best in all of the various traditions. I, I kind of think of the church. The, I'm not. This is not a scholarly analysis. This is BZ's way of thinking about it. I think of the church as a seven branch menorah consisting of Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Anglican Communion. Uh, are you guys Anglicans or, or in that world somehow? Neil, is that your background? No, no, it's um, not. I'm no. just going to your accent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll keep going. Okay. Uh, yeah. Protestantism in its many, many iterations. Uh, Anabaptist, don't forget yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my thing. Yeah. Anabaptist, yeah. and then evangelical, and then Pentecostal, Pentecostal charismatic. I I think of them as as all of them are custodians of various treasures. If you if you want me to critique each of the seven, I could do that, but I would do it unwillingly. I, I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in is talking about what treasures they have yeah. been entrusted with. So I, I love you know 
Orthodox mystery and Catholic beauty and Anglican liturgy and uh, Protestant audacity. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you just need to, I'm, I got 95 <laughs> things that we need to reform and you, you Here's nail a, it to the door. Uh, Anabaptist peacemaking, yeah. mm-hmm. evangelical energy. Say what you will about evangelicals. They have yeah, energy. They sure do. And yeah. it can go bad, but, <laughs> yeah. but it can be good too. Yeah. Evangelical energy and um, Pentecostal. Pentecostal charismatic, just reality, just sure. experience of the Spirit. Mm. Well said. And so I, I, well said. But, but, but to bring us back to where we started on this thing, I really sincerely do believe that there is a lot of healing theology yes. that can be found within orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't know what our people that are hearing this podcast, seeing this podcast think, but I think that penal substitutionary atonement theory via Anselm, via Calvin, is a pernicious doctrine that Amen. actually has real-life consequences. Um, it gets confused for the gospel. Mm-hmm. in many circles in the West, and yet the East has never yeah. believed that. That's right. And, they, and if, you, if, you, if you spell it out, how, you know, penal substitutionary atonement theory, to an Orthodox theologian or priest, they will, unless they're in America and they already know it, but they'll be incredulous. What? You, you believe what? So when people s- try to say to me that I'm just, you know, Johnny-come-lately progressive, Mm-hmm. rejecting penal substitutionary <laughs> atonement theory. I have to correct this. No, 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 no. The, the whole Eastern half of Christianity has never believed that. So, you know, they want that's an example where someone wants to call you a heretic because yeah. you don't subscribe to a particular atonement theory when the entire Eastern church... So you have to, see, you have to say all of orthodoxy is heretical, which is even an odd sentence. <laughs> we, All of yeah. orthodoxy is heretical, <laughs> and funny enough, there are fundamentals who oh, are yeah. willing to do that, that but they just—they just, just look—but they just look silly. I mean, <laughs> that's that's a person you can't take seriously, and really, if they're going to do that, then I, you know, why even bother? Uh, hey, uh, Neil and Peter, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions and for guiding us through. And you're still going to be here in the room as yeah. we continue to speak with Brian. But uh, I was thinking as you guys were talking, you know. Um, the work of, of our crew, Reflector Project in general, and Rector's Cupboard is the podcast, we're often accused of being universalists um, in, in similar ways. And we've come to a point where we say we have kind of a ready answer that, that uh, we say, um, well, we're not, and for various reasons, and, but we welcome the accusation uh, that, that, that if we're doing things well and pursuing this theological healing well, uh, it makes sense. To Shouldn't we accusation. all hope that the universals are right? Yes. Yeah, that's it. so we <laughs> no. welcome the accusation. No, I remember yeah. reading uh, Will Williman's book. Um, is it Who Will Be Saved or That All Should Be Saved? I get Who the hands Balthazar one. Who Will Be Saved. Who yeah. Will Be Saved. Um, and he, yeah, he talks about, he's like, isn't that really the best yeah. thing? Yeah. Is that everybody yeah. gets saved? Like how, like that is a very good God who saves everyone. Yeah, and the and the other thing that we think of often, right, and we, is, is, um, Carl Bart's experience, you may know this, Brian, of, of mm-hmm. um, Billy Graham, who he connected with and, and quite liked and all the rest. And then he, but he writes or in, his, um, in his reflection later, he says, and then I went to the, the crusade, or I think whatever he called it, which is an interesting word anyway. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. And he says, and then I, could, I, I was struggled <laughs> with what I was watching, uh, Bart says, and then he simply says, the gospel cannot be presented at gunpoint. Um, yeah. If it's at gunpoint, it ceases 
to be the gospel. So one one of my favorite Bart anecdotes is uh, he was asked, "When were you saved?" He mm. said, "Yeah, thirty three A.D. Golgotha." Yeah. So I want to pick this up just before we ask a question of beauty and such as you. Um, I can see it in the way you speak uh, to these questions, and obviously in in your writing and work. Um, some of the ways that you've seen how bad and fearful theology has hurt people, like so, your personal encounters. You share some of them in, in the course that that I took mm-hmm. online. Um, but just as a pastor and teacher, how has that affected you? And what you know, you might think of specific examples or whatever that where you've seen not not just that this is troubling theology, but that it's hurt people. <laughs> Maybe just respond to that. Yeah, all of my theology has been done as a pastor, all right? So, which I think has always been a very good, I don't know what word I want to use, safeguard for me. Um, There's not, certainly there's nothing wrong with simply being a theologian and not being a pastor. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be a pastor to be a theologian. But for me... I think it's good because it's it's too easy to either become theoretical or become reckless. Mm. Where everything that I do theologically, I still do it in the context of an actual congregation yeah. of people who, first of all, don't sit around and read theology yeah. all day. Long. <laughs> yeah. They're not interested in it. They love Jesus. They're not going to read academic theology, yeah. and they don't need to. And um, and this has been a little bit of my frustration with academic theology, which I love. I've read a ton of it, uh, but it gets stuck yeah. in the mm. academy, and it, you end up with theologians writing for theologians. Yeah, I mean, you you see that, and they're, they're going to dot all of their I's and cross all of their T's so that they don't run afoul of their colleagues, but they, but it still stays in this lofty language of the professional academic theologian. Well. St- yeah, that's fine as long as there is some conduit to get down into the local. If it doesn't reach the pew, if it doesn't reach the local church, then what are we doing here? Yeah, uh, I forgot what the question was. What am I supposed to be going <laughs> on? Just how you're pastoral. You're being very pastoral. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, I pictured. You know what I pictured to give you? I pictured. You, I think you referenced this in in one of the class in one of the sessions in the class. Um, and that was that you were pre- preparing for an upcoming memorial or funeral or something. And I thought as a fellow pastor, I thought, you know, those places are places where the theology comes out from the person presiding over the service. From the, And so I pictured you, and it's me kind of anticipating. Yeah, if your theology doesn't work at the funeral, yeah. if it doesn't work at yeah. a graveside, yeah. then it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. And if you have this and, hopeful uh, theological view like you have, that's going to be present there, right? In so many beautiful ways that it... Um... Yeah, and I, I I read books for my congregation. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, my, I you know, you, you have, we have, we have notable exceptions in our congregation, but for the most part, they're not going to read Bart. Yeah. No, they're not no. going to read David Bentley Hart. No, no, no. They're not going to read Irenaeus or Gregory of Nyssa. Or many There's of the no, Orthodox writers. Yeah. They're yeah. not going to read yeah. Ser- Sergius Bolgolkov. Yeah. No, they're not going to, but they don't... But that's what they, they need a pastor that does. And mm-hmm. this is one of my critiques, though, of at least in the evangelical world, in the American church, is that uh, American pastors are reading business journals. Yeah, yes. or just each other. Yeah. Or just each other, yeah. Yeah. the kind of pop-level books. Yeah. How to, how to grow your than, church. I think it's yeah. their task yeah. to read 
academic level theology and then find a way to translate it yes. into an accessible Sunday morning sermon. And I think that's one of the most important things I do. Hmm. But I can um, see with you. So, so if, so for example, I've read a lot of Gerard, Rene Gerard, who's not yeah. a theologian mm-hmm. person. In fact, he's a little bit hard. He's an academic who was hard to classify because he worked, <laughs> you know, through all these disciplines. Um, but I could I could say that most people at Word of Life Church understand how the scapegoat mechanism works and how Jesus saves us from it because they've heard me talk about it so mm-hmm. much. And most of them, I'm going to say 95% of them would never would have no idea who Rene Girard is. I'm not trying to conceal. You know, when I write, I yeah. reveal my source. Yeah. When I'm preaching on Sunday morning, it doesn't mean no, no good to no. cite, you know, a French academic. Yeah. <laughs> that, that comes across, that can be off-putting, in fact, in a sermon on a Sunday morning if you're speaking to a real congregation. And so that's that would just be one example of taking something that was born in the academy that is a gift that is wonderful, but bringing it to the congregation. But it's it clearly people trust you, and that's back to the pastoral sensibility. That well, they they trust me at least at at this local church that I've pastored uh, for forty one and a half years. Yeah. You know, if I was running and, the scam, they'd have that. found me out by now. And beyond that, that there is a, and I think that was the next question I had was in line of the the threat that people can feel in changing what they believe or how mm-hmm. they believe. And often yeah. that threat, I would think, and you can re- respond to this, is diminished by someone they trust being a helpful guide. How have you experienced that? Either people's fear or how your ro- you, you have a role well, in helping them. You know, you, I think you, you probably are somewhat familiar with my story. I'll try to mm-hmm. bring our audience up to speed mm-hmm. here. I come from the Jesus movement. It's led me into the charismatic movement. Church grew enormously in the 90s, Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri. At one point, we were recognized as one of the 20 fastest growing churches in America. Ta-da! You, you know, look very it, impressed by that. It, well, it, it was fun. <laughs> it was exciting. Um, I, I enjoyed the ride, but once I got to where we were going, I, didn't, I wasn't satisfied. It felt weak, thin, compromised felt consumerist, felt way too American. And so I began to realize that. And then I began to seek for something richer, deeper, uh, more connected with early Christianity, and I found it. And then then I had the task of trying to bring the church mm-hmm. to this new place. And that was hard. Hmm. And it was really hard. It took 10 years, and we lost a lot of people. Uh, I, I bear them no animosity. I understand. I wish they could have stayed. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been good for them, but they were alarmed. You know, uh, most of them that left so long ago, I'm talking about something that began in 2004. So, you know, we're talking about something that began almost 20 years ago. So it's been a long time. I think people that left, you know, in 2004, five, six, seven, I think they were afraid that, BZ was, you know, six months from now, he'll be a Buddhist or an atheist or something like that. And now I think most of them go, nah, it looks like he's going to stay a Christian. <laughs> he's still talking about <laughs> Jesus an awful lot. They've, you know, moved on and found themselves another congregation, I hope. But um, I, I don't feel anymore like, like 
people are afraid that I'm going to damage someone's mm-hmm. faith. No, yeah. no, I get that. I get that online, but that's just the internet. Yeah. Okay. Know? Well, that's, would, you know, you're, you're never going to get away from no. the cranks <laughs> on the internet. That's and, just the way that but goes. We've, yeah. are, we've already uh, um, opened some of that in Neil and, and Peter's questions. Um, and then your mention of like eternal conscious torment and, and your ability and willingness to say that's heretical um, speaks to some of what you were just saying that, that cause so, to some people that would be like, what do you mean? That's what I've always thought. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I better be careful about this guy. Right? You know, I, I think people believe in, quote, eternal conscious torment hell because they feel like they have to. Yep, I do. And I think, I think to maintain sanity, they actually just, they believe it in a compartment of their mind yes. called theoretical theology when we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. But if you walk around... If I don't know, how, could you go through life believing that the vast majority of people that you see at the grocery store, that you interact with, that you see at a ball game, is they're about to enter into a state where they will eternally be tortured? Mm-hmm. I, I think it would. I think it would drive you to madness. You would turn into some kind of religious fanatic, or you would lose your yes. mind. And because most people don't become a really over-the-top, nutty, religious <laughs> fanatic or insane, I think it's because they compartmentalize it. Yeah. They don't no. when it's when the subject comes up, they say, Oh, yes, I believe that, because they think they have to. Yeah. But I don't think they really go through life leaving that moment by moment. Allison, you yeah. are nodding a lot. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like you're encapsulating a lot of my kind of uh, faith journey over the last probably close to 15 years where I, I was in a reasonably um, conservative Baptist church growing up and I didn't see a problem with it until I left. And all of a sudden I was like, oh crap, that's weird stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it didn't make sense. Um, and I found, I found your story really compelling about how you, you're very confessional about how you, you started out in, in one way and then you, yeah you shifted and you, you're still here. <laughs> and I feel um, like for yeah. several of our, like for lots of our listeners, they would probably find themselves in either an area where they're trying, trying to question things or they're realizing some of those ways that they may have compartmentalized things. And I know that for some people, there's a big fear in that, that if I let go of this, does that mean I have to let go of everything? And I feel like your work does a really beautiful yeah. job of saying, no, 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 you don't need to do that. And it's not even, it's not theoretical for you. It's very much, you are living proof that you can make this. I mean, I think it's amazing that you stayed pastoring at your church through this transition. I, I feel like I knew that, but I didn't quite, I didn't quite realize that. The, um, the hell shift happened 14 years ago, which isn't that long ago. No, really. No. Um, and it, I was at my father's bedside. He was in his long, slow process of dying. Mm. And and he had fallen and broken an arm. And so I was visiting in the hospital. He was, you know, pretty advanced dementia, didn't talk much. You could get a yes or a no out of him, but that was about it. So sitting with him, it wasn't like, you know, lots of conversation. And so I, w- I had a book with me and I was reading 
Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Prophets, mm-hmm. which I would recommend to yeah. anyone. Somewhere on the shelf behind Right behind us. Us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. Abraham Joshua Heschel was so immersed in the prophets that he kind of like turned into a Hebrew prophet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's this, you know, 20th century Jewish theologian, philosopher, rabbi. And I mean, it's it's as good a work on the prophets that you'll ever read. And so I'm reading this this wonderful book. And then it's time for me to leave. You know, I'm in the hospital. It's late at night. The lights are low. I'm in a pensive mood to begin with. Hmm. I leave my father's hospital room. I go to the elevator. As the elevator doors close, this thought just shoot, just leapt into my mind. Is Abraham Joshua Heschel in hell? Because you know, he wasn't a Christian, right? He's Jewish. And I, mean, I just said, I just said out loud, well, what would be the point of that? It just, it just struck me as an absurdity. Yes. And, and you said, well, yeah, but he didn't become a Christian. Yeah, there's reasons for that, right? You know, uh, mm-hmm. you know how, how, how faithful a witness to Jesus Christ has the church been to Jewish people over the centuries, right? I mean, there's a reason. Why many Jews are not becoming quote Christians? Mm-hmm. So that that was that was a it's amazing. You can I mean, I was already the on the, yeah. a trajectory toward that, yeah. but but the absurdity of it, yeah, the absurdity of it. I just thought this is ludicrous. Hmm. Why would I? What would be the point of it? And the point of it is a theological. We're back to okay, real life consequences of bad theology. Mm-hmm. In and I'm I I can't hardly not name names here. Um, <laughs> That's fun. John Calvin. God bless him. Um, for his system to work, mm-hmm. and and this is why I'm not a big fan of systematic theology. Discover what you can and hold on to the pieces, even if they they appear disparate. Which when we try start trying to put it all together, yeah, yeah, build yeah. The, that yeah. that we can have problems. In Calvin's system. All non-Christians are evil, mm-hmm. or to turn it around, the word evil is a technical word for all non-Christians, and that is simply not how the Bible uses that word. No, it's just not how the Bible uses the word. Uh, in Calvin's system, you can't speak of somebody who's not a believer being a good person, Yeah, but the Bible does. Yes. And and if we're not engaged in technical conversation, technical theological conversation, we all understand that. Yeah. You know, so and so are they not a Christian, but he's a good guy. That's a good woman. <laughs> she's you know she, she would do anything for you. She just doesn't believe yet. And so, um, yeah. I was I was wondering whether part of this shift for you. I know I know you've spoken about the influence of George McDonald. In, I love George McDonald. Yeah, and so I I reread um, Justice, like from There's Unspoken Sermons. Right yes, within reach. There's Unspoken <laughs> okay, Sermons. I was about, about to quote him. Yeah, so, yeah. No, yeah. my brother-in-law is a really, really big fan. He's been a George McDonald evangelist for quite a while. Um, but in in his in his sermon on justice, he talks about the absurdity of opposing Jesus, like God's justice and His mercy, as if the two are mutually exclusive and how God is bound to punish sin is, 
like, can you speak to some of maybe the influence of George McDonald and how you have understood things like hell? Yeah, my introduction to George McDonald is almost what everybody's is. You find him. Well, <laughs> this isn't the case nowadays, but back in the day, you found him via C.S. Lewis. Yes. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, I, I, I wonder how well-known George McDonald would be today if it weren't for C.S. I think he might be virtually unknown. Yeah. And so George McDonald, this 19th century Scottish so pastor, crazy. preacher, until he wasn't, um, playwright, novelist, theologian, mystic, poet. We, this, is, this is a cliche term, but it, it, it applies to George McDonald. He was a man ahead of his time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, what in the world? How did you? There was a glitch in the matrix. That yes. You yeah. ended up in yeah. 19th century Scotland, <laughs> for crying out loud. <laughs> but he, he followed his, his true spiritual intuition. Here, I'll, I'll tell you what David Bentley Hart says about him. In his typically bombastic, hyperbolic <laughs> way, um, David Bentley Hart describes George MacDonald as the greatest theologian in the history of the English language. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's, but maybe, but maybe. Uh, I'm not going to argue I with David Bentley Hart. I didn't, know, I, I didn't know that Hart did that. So that's, yeah, that's new to yeah. me. Yeah, so I, I he's. Where do you start with him? Um, I started with Lilith, which is like mm. diving into the deep end immediately. But I love that book. the The reason there's a re, the reason that I could reach this. This is my I'm at my writing desk. This is where I write all my books. And the eleventh book, Wood Between the Worlds, comes out in February. But you know, you have other projects that yeah. come up. And I'm just, and I haven't even written the first sentence. I know what the first sentence will be, but I haven't written it yet. I'm still kind of just working on how this is going to work. But uh, I want to call it, and you know, we'll see if the publisher can be persuaded, but I want to call it Paths of Unseen Existences. Uh, so. Just don't make it a page yeah, and a half like McDonald's. it's so the new. of it's like so the wise woman. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because I've, sentence, I've given it, this, these are, there may not be a book by this title because I have to, pers- but I think I will. <laughs> Paths of Unseen Existences, The Pilgrimage of the Soul Toward Wonder, Beauty, and Glory. And so I just have my stack of books that I think are going to help inform And George McDonald's going to be in there. Yeah. You know, that's a good good segue to one of the, or two of the things I want to talk about before we have to end, and that is... Um, your work on your writing on beauty and astonishment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think of, you know, back to Bart and stuff and how Bart talks about how if a theologian ceases to be astonished, they're, they're not of much mm. use anymore, right? They should find another, another profession. Um, and you uh, write about astonishment and beauty will save the world. And then, and your first answer to, to, um, to Peter had to do with beauty. So tell us about beauty and astonishment, how these have been key in, in you ex- expressing kind of a theological perspective. Yeah, the Greek philosophers talked about the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And then these are adopted by early Christian theologians, and they would say, yeah, these are these are attributes of God. And when we say the transcendentals, we mean we want the good because it's good. We want the true because it's true. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. It doesn't have to serve some utilitarian hmm. purpose. 
which is uh, an obsession in the American church, <laughs> yes. to make it pra- to preach practical sermons, yeah. apply it to your life. Yeah. That sort of thing, <laughs> yeah. which I hate. Yeah. Uh, but Amen. We, we want the truth because it's true. We want goodness because it's good. We want the beautiful because it's beautiful. That's that's how that works. Now, in the long history of the church, we have a long, venerable history of working with the true and the good. This would be Christian apologetics mm-hmm. in its best form. There's ugly forms of apologetics, mm-hmm. and, and pop apologetics are stupid. But, you know, there there's a long history of apologetics, Christian apologetics, that is the defense of the truth in Christ. And then there's Christian ethics. This is the attempt to define the good in the light of Christ. But then what about Christian aesthetics? Well, it's been hit and miss. (laughs) There's been times when the church has leaned into that. But there's also been times when the church has regarded beauty as mere adornment and not having any actual ontological significance, I find that it it strikes me as the way forward in our mm. present moment. Mm. I'm not saying that Christian ethics and Christian apologetics are illegitimate, but I will say this, that if we take our stand in the 21st century marketplace of ideas mm-hmm. and say, hey, wider world out mm-hmm. there, we have absolute truth, and we know what's good for you, and we meet at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't we done that already? That, yeah. that at best is going to be met with shoulder-shrugging indifference, or yeah. we'll probably get flipped off as it's going to happen. But beauty has a way of sneaking past our defenses. This goes mm. all the way back to our what may have been the first question, and that's in youth camp. Yeah. How would I present the gospel? And I think my first answer was yeah. I would lean Beautiful. into the beauty of Christ. Yes. Amen. And Amen. so I think there are ways. I, th- I think beauty is a reliable guide. And now I understand that we can be that if you confuse beauty with glamour or with adornment or with prettification, I just made that word up, I think pretty prettification. Uh, I understand that there's a way to get off there. Yeah. But if we, but if we really do understand, have a, have a sense of what is beauty, and I think most people do have an instinct for beauty, that that'll be a true path. And can we present the gospel in a beautiful way and live beautiful lives? Hmm. And and we don't get to be the judge of that. It, it has to be those outside the church yeah. that look upon us and go, yes. say what you will. I don't believe mm-hmm. what these guys believe, yeah. but you have to admit that's beautiful. Well, so I think that's really, not well, only is I think it a way forward, it may for a century or two really be the only way forward. Well said. Yeah. You know, in your, in your online course, um, Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God, when I listened to the session on hell. So you basically, as you know, I'm telling you what you've done. (laughs) Um, If God is loving, what about? What about Old Testament violence? What about the cross? What about, uh, and then of course, what about hell? And uh, you were smiling when you went through this in in the course. You said that you sometimes take groups of people to Jerusalem and you have one day where you say... um, we're going to go to go hell, hell and back. Who wants to go to hell and back? And then you, and then you said, um, turns out everybody wants to go. I, I um, love doing that. And then that. you so go fun. there. Yeah. And you've then presented, and I think Allison, you looked it up. Oh, the, the image picture of the that you referenced is Gehenna, is the garbage well, dump and the, yeah. Like, tell us a little bit about what, what literal hell is. <laughs> okay. So 
um, the word that gets translated hell the most in the New Testament is Gehenna, and it's a reference to a valley to the like west of space. the old city of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which was the city dump, yeah. which is where you know the the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. You get that. Mm-hmm. And so Jeremiah says, you know, with the impending destruction in 586, the whole city is going to go to Gehenna. Jesus recycles that yeah. same language, worn in Jerusalem, it's headed for Gehenna, mm-hmm. that it is fulfilled a generation later in A.D. 70. Well, you know, the valley is still there. And so I don't, it's not like an official part of our <laughs> pilgrimage, but I, but I always do it. I always, I'll say, cause once we're in Jerusalem, we're staying, you know, near the old city, it'll be at, I'll say, I'm, I'm going to go to, and then people have heard about it. So they're always asking me, but when do we get to go to hell? Uh, but I'll say if you, if you want to go to literal hell, not mm-hmm. figurative, not spiritual, mm-hmm. not postmortem, but literal hell. I will take you to literal hell and back if you want to go. It's optional. And, of course, almost everybody yeah. wants to. <laughs> and so what you do is you, you take them, you know, through the city. You go out to Jaffa Gate, and you come to um, Ben Gehenim Park. It's a park. It's a park. <laughs> it's, there's, there's gates there, but literally I've never seen the gates shut. I, I, I suppose they can shut. I've never there. seen them shut. <laughs> I've never seen them shut. Um, every time I've been there, they've been open. Uh, so I said, okay, here's the gates of, li- this is the, this is hell. And literally, not figuratively, literally. This is the inspiration for hell. This is where hell was. This is what people called hell, Gehenna. And here's the gates and the gates of hell are not prevailing. All right, we're going in. <laughs> and the first thing you see is a, is a fountain. And these in this in this stream, it's kind of it's a concrete thing, and it and it flows down to the depths of hell. And there's park benches, and there's fountains, and there's lush lawns, and sometimes there's concerts. You know, they have a little concert stage down there. But as as you walk in, one of the first things you'll see it's in Hebrew, but you know what it says? It has it has the it has. There's writing in Hebrew, but it, you see the flame. You see a mm-hmm. flame, and then the international no <laughs> through it. Like Which I, what it's, it's saying is, you know, you can't have image. any. You you can't you can't have any fires in the park. You can't go in there and start a you know that is fire to unreal. cook your hot dogs. Over that or whatever. is so good. But but, but in literal hell, there's there is a no literal fire. sign that says literally no fires in hell. <laughs> That's great. The but, harrowing but the point of, hell. of that is no the kidding. point of that is. There was a time mm-hmm. when literal hell was literal hell. You know, 586, A.D. 70, or prior to that when it was associated know. with Molech worship and all the hideous things mm-hmm. that happened there. But today, it's a picture of apocatastasis. It's a picture of the restoration of all things. That, that even hell itself, yes. literal hell, can be redeemed. And that yes. which was so the good. place where the, where the fire... Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not so quenched good. today, it's a lovely park. You know, oh, when, I you, <laughs> when you when you when you brought that out, you also did this thing. I'm telling you more of what you did, um, and that is that you you said to the class. Now I'm saying something for people who aren't in the class too. Um, go and find my chapter in in the book on that, mm-hmm. and then this impressed mm-hmm. me. So well, back, so we'll end with what we started with, the pastoral nature of your work. That you said, um, 
you know, you don't have to buy my book. You, you put it that way. And, and that connected with me right away simply because in this place, you talk about practicality and all these things like of empire building, everybody building their own empire, um, that I can see you as motivated by something uh, different than that wanting to make an actual uh, difference for the people who are listening to you. And it, it came up with that. Go and find my chapter on this hell and how to get there. Um, and then you indicated to people how they could do that without buying your book. And then I think you ended with saying, uh, I wish it was 12 of us in a room because you were speaking to mm -hmm. many more people than that. Uh, no, I really felt that. I'm yeah, and really that's, a, that's that. a pastoral sensibility, right? That it's not about how can we make this bigger and bigger and bigger. But is this yeah. making a difference? And mm -hmm. so I'll end by saying this. And I'm it, looking at yeah. Peter and Neil, and it's making a difference. I know you know that already, but you'll hear it again from us, <laughs> Thank uh, you. people you haven't met before. Um, we're engaged in similar work and we're pleased to be, but thank you so yes. much for going on ahead of people like us and, and projects like ours and, uh, and right near here, we could walk there, you guys in like 10 minutes, not even there's a trail. There is a park, it's called inter river park and it used to be the city garbage dump. Mm. And now yeah. like that place, it's filled with beautiful fields, mountain views, um, and so it's our little local Gehenna. So uh, we'll go there and back. Brian, thank you so much you, for taking you. the time. We're going to keep reading your work and recommending it. Um, thanks to Neil yes. and Peter for engaging so well and all of us. And, and so and we'll, uh, we'll be in touch from here. Thank you. It was much. a delight to be with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank thanks you so much. very much. Blessings. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Thank you.